You're listening to the Higher Ed Marketing Lab. I'm your host, Jared Smith. Welcome to the Higher Ed Marketing Lab. I'm Jared Smith. Each episode, it's my job to engage with some of the brightest minds in marketing and higher education to bring you actionable advice you can use to level up your school's marketing and enrollment efforts. In this episode, we'll be talking about podcasting. If you're in a marketing role, chances are pretty good that you, your colleagues, or your boss have at least toyed with the idea of launching a podcast as part of your school's marketing plan. That makes sense given all the hype around podcasting in recent years, but what's really involved in launching a podcast? What's the potential payoff, and is it maybe too late to get in on this medium? Joining us to help answer some of these questions and more is Jenna Spinelli. Jenna is the communications specialist at Penn State's McCourtney Institute for Democracy. Since 2018, Jenna has been working with the Institute's team to produce and promote the Democracy Works podcast, and she's got great advice for anyone considering adding podcasting to their school's marketing mix. We start off by talking about why podcasting has become such a hot medium over the last few years, and then we turn to more practical matters like setting realistic expectations for exposure and listenership, essential considerations for picking the right topic, and smart ways to make the workload of producing and promoting a podcast more manageable. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Jenna Spinelli. Jenna, welcome to the show. Hey, Jared. Thanks for having me. So glad you're here, and I'm super excited to have this conversation about podcasting in higher ed. Before we get to that, though, could you start off by just telling us a little bit about yourself and your role at Penn State? Sure. So I work for the McCourtney Institute for Democracy, which is a research center that looks at democracy from a couple of different angles. I am a comms team of one. So in addition to producing a podcast, which I'm sure we'll talk about, I also handle all of our social media, website content, media relations, pretty much anything that would fall under the communications umbrella. So it's in many ways a a perfect mix of a lot of things that I'm interested in. Democracy encompasses politics, it encompasses the media. My background is in journalism, and I get to do a lot of pretty cool Marcom stuff as well, including our podcast. Very cool. So it's interesting. Podcasting started like quite a while ago. I mean, it dates all the way back to, as kind of we know it today, Back around 2004, it was, I guess, brought into iTunes around then or Apple Podcasts now around 2004. And it's kind of been one of those sleeper mediums. I would love it if you could kind of set the table for us by giving us a little background on why is podcasting kind of the it medium now? Why are so many folks tuning into that? Yeah, it's funny. I've been trying to think about, you know, have our lifestyles adapted to podcasting or has it been the other way around? Has podcasting kind of cropped up because of needs or, you know, just just the way that how we live our lives has changed? I think it's probably a little bit of both, right? So if you think about like, you know, we spend more time today maybe commuting on public transportation or, or driving in cars or, of course, all about like optimizing our lives and, you know, being productive and wanting to connect with people. I think in some ways, you know, our world is very disconnected, even though we have access to any information we would want at any time through our phones. I think that can get kind of lonely and podcasts are a way for people to 
have those connections or at least feel like they have those connections. You know, you literally have someone coming right into your ear talking about their life or telling you a funny story or teaching you something new. And so I think that's part of the reason why they have really caught on. There's research out there to suggest that about 74% of podcast listeners tune in because they want to learn something new. So I think there's a lot of opportunity in that for folks in higher ed to really take advantage of something that people seem to be hungry for. Mm -hmm. I think it is kind of an interesting question of why now, but the growth has been really pretty impressive around podcasts. Can you give folks a sense of just how big the podcast universe is and how this is really a serious channel? Somewhere around 40% of the country listens to podcasts at least once a month. Even more than that have listened to a podcast in their lifetimes at all. And it's growing every year. And in particular, from 2018 to 2019, the the growth was about double what it had been. So it had been a pretty steady 2 to 3% increase year over year. And now from 2018 to 2019, it's gone up about 6% or so. I expect it's going to keep on growing, especially as more celebrities start to have podcasts. Conan has really brought a lot of folks to the medium. I just heard that Rain Wilson from The Office is going to have a podcast. I think Barack and Michelle Obama are working on one. So I think all that is really good because it helps bring visibility to the medium overall. I just chuckled while you were saying all that because I was thinking of the Oprah, you know, you get a podcast, you get a podcast. (laughs) Exactly, exactly, exactly. (laughs) Just personally reflecting on this, when we started this podcast, we kicked it off in uh, October of 2018 and I was was so crushed. I was like, oh, I feel so cliche. (laughs) (laughs) I missed the boat. But maybe a more serious point that I think we've all seen in a lot of these channels that timing really matters. You know, I remember... Back in the day when Facebook had really serious organic reach, right? And as more users piled on and then their kind of profit motive got introduced, that organic reach dried up and it kind of became what it is today. And it's not necessarily from a marketing standpoint, always as effective in certain ways as it was in the past. We've seen that with blogging, right? There's so many blogs out there and it, and it becomes a very crowded space. And just kind of over and over again, there's that curve where you sort of get diminishing returns because so many people are kind of piling on. If you're starting a podcast today, what are you kind of getting into in terms of, you know, the crowding in that marketplace that's out there and the competition for people's attention? Just like every other aspect of our media diet, as you were saying, there is definitely a lot of competition for attention. There are now at least 700,000, if not close to 750,000 podcasts out there in the world and and about 4,000 new shows being added every week. Mm -hmm. You'll see an article every once in a while, have we hit peak podcasts, right? And I think that we are probably getting close to some type of like saturation point if the number of listeners doesn't continue to also grow. Mm -hmm. But I think that higher ed in particular, we have a pretty unique opportunity to help bring new people into the fold, so to speak. Colleges all have a variety of different audiences that they work with from students, faculty, staff, alumni, people in in the community who might come to events on your campus. Some of those folks listen to podcasts, but some of them probably don't. And your show, your university's podcast might just be that vehicle that gets them into podcasting. And from there, they discover whatever other show they might want to listen to. 
Mm-hmm. It's kind of the rising tide lifts all boats model. I've mentioned our podcast at university meetings and events and literally had like a line of people come up to me after and hand me their phones and say, I don't know how to find this, put it on here. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, people are, are hungry for the content. They just don't know how to find it. So mm-hmm. whatever we all as podcasters collectively can do to help people find it, I think is super important. Yeah. I think whenever you're kind of venturing off into a new medium, it's super important. Somebody listening to this is contemplating maybe starting a podcast at their school. You know, I think it's super important to have realistic expectations about what you're going to get out of that. So you've been podcasting for a while and are obviously well-versed on the subject. What do you think people need to be prepared for in terms of the type of exposure they could have, the number of downloads, if we just want to quantify it? What kind of reach does this get you? First of all, I'll say you're not going to be serial. You're not going to be the daily. You're not going to be Joe Rogan. Sometimes, uh, especially if the idea for a podcast starts at the top of an organization, there might be some of those expectations that you're going mm-hmm. to get, you know, millions or tens of thousands of downloads. There is a podcast hosting platform called Libsyn that compiles average and median stats every month and they release them on their podcast called The Feed. And so based on on what I've heard from them, the median number of downloads per episode is somewhere around 140 to 150. So Libsyn always says, if you have more than that, you're better than half the podcasts out there. Mm -hmm. And just to add some perspective to that, if you have more than 1,100 downloads per episode, you're in the top 20% of all podcasts. And to be in the top 10%, you We need 3,200 downloads per episode. So those numbers don't sound like a lot, but I think if you think about it in terms of most colleges, I would venture if you had 150 people come to an event on your campus or like an alumni networking event, you would consider that a resounding success. I guess maybe unless you brought in some really big name speaker or, or something like that. But, you know, with a podcast, you have 150 people tuning into you week after week after week and people that might not even necessarily have had any connection to your university previously. So there might be for folks starting out the need to just reframe some of those expectations. Like, yeah, you might not get a high amount of numbers, especially at the start, but the engagement, the amount of attention people are giving you is much, much greater. You know, people are listening to you for 10, 20, 30 minutes, maybe even longer than that. So if you think about like the total slice of that attention pie, it's pretty big. Yeah. And I couldn't agree more. If you were to have that same number of people in a room and get to talk to them (laughs) and deliver that same content face-to-face, you would be absolutely thrilled. I think that's a really healthy way to kind of think about it and kind of bring it back down to earth. And, you know, podcasting outside of just the download numbers and the sort of more quantifiable reach that you have, I think can have a lot of different benefits. And I know you and I have talked about this a little bit in terms of it's not just downloads that you get and the folks that are listening to that. It kind of allows you to do other things that maybe wouldn't ordinarily be able to do. Could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, sure. So the McCourtney Institute for Democracy, where I worked, is a fairly new institute at Penn State. We've only been around for about four years or so, which is not very long in higher ed terms. So our podcast, uh, which is called Democracy Works, 
has really allowed us to punch above our weight class a little bit. So we've been able to reach out to other research centers at places like Princeton and Stanford and Harvard and have some of these pretty big time faculty on our show. And we would have never had a reason to reach out to them otherwise. And now we've established those connections. They know who we are, what we do. I think we're hoping that it will lead to increased opportunities down the line. We've only been doing the show for about a, a year and a half now. So, you know, a lot of other research projects and things tend to have a much longer time span to them. But, you know, they definitely know our name. We've been invited to speak at conferences. And when our faculty go out, they say they're from the McCourtney Institute. They're like, oh, you're the people with the podcast. So it really helped us with in terms of, of name recognition and, and establishing our institute in a field that is a little bit crowded. Good stuff. Okay, so let's get down into kind of the brass tacks of what it actually takes to produce a podcast and do that well. If someone is thinking, I think we might want to wade into these podcast waters, or maybe their boss is kind of nudging them into the podcast waters, what are your thoughts on how to get started in a smart way? Yeah. So as with any kind of marketing project, I think it's important to understand what you want to say and what your goals are for putting that content out there. I mean, because the landscape is so crowded already, you really need to make sure that you are filling a niche that someone else is not already filling. I would suggest first, you know, think about what area it is you want to focus on. So podcasting is a super niche medium as evidenced by the fact that you and I are talking today on the show. It's all about higher ed marketing, right? Mm -hmm. So if I would have said, I want to make a podcast about Penn State, I mean, there's 160 majors here and, and you know, any number of, of things that we do. So it's, that's too broad to really match into any one specific niche. So think about what's your university known for? What are your strengths? Where are your rock star faculty? What's their expertise? What can they bring to the table? And and try to figure out where you can fit and survey the landscape. Of course, listen to other shows out there. Start doing some keyword searches in Apple Podcasts or, or Spotify or whatever your podcast app of choice is and see what people are, are already talking about and figure out if there's a way that you can add something different or add something unique to that landscape. So for us, after the 2016 election, there was a, a lot of talk about democracy. There was a whole cottage industry of books that were written and are, are still being written, but we didn't really see anyone that was having a version of what was being written in those books in a podcast form. So we saw an opportunity and just decided to kind of go for it. In higher ed too, we tend to have like decision paralysis sometimes, or you you know the, the more people you get involved, all of a sudden you have a committee and you have to have like six months or a year of, of planning before you can even get something off the ground. I think definitely as podcasting continues to get more popular, you should, if you have a good idea and you are reasonably confident that no one else is doing it, you should strike while the iron's hot. Otherwise someone else is going to most likely, you know, come along with your idea. Absolutely. And so I would just say work diligently, but also quickly and try to find some, some happy medium between those two things. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense, really kind of trying to dive into that niche and figure out where you can bring a unique voice to the table. And of course, there's a larger question that I know you're very mindful of, of how does this fit within our larger institutional 
mission because there's a lot you can do with a podcast. You need to understand how that fits with where the larger organization is heading. How have you thought about that with your podcast or talk to other folks about that? It is important, as you were saying, to understand what your organization's goals are. Where does your podcast fit into your existing comms plan? Is it something that you're going to use to try to build outreach to a particular group of students? I know a colleague of mine at American University produces a podcast called Big World. It's run out of the School of International Service, and they view it as a recruiting tool for prospective graduate students that they want to come to their program. They can hear from their faculty about the things that they're working on. That's been a good vehicle for them in terms of recruitment. I think, as I said, with our show, it's more about just establishing our institute and Penn State as part of these larger national and international conversations that are happening about the state of democracy in the U.S. and throughout the world. I think the answer to that question is probably going to be different for Mm -hmm. everybody. It'll probably depend on, again, what your faculty's strengths are, what your staff's strengths are. So, you know, do you have the resources on your comms team to produce an NPR style, you know, This American Life field recording type of show? Or do you have somebody who might be better as a host and you just do like an interview type of show? What are your resources and and where is it going to fit into your existing marketing plan? Yep. Those are the types of conversations I've had with other folks here at Penn State. Yeah, such important advice. So kind of diving a little deeper into that workflow and kind of resources piece, because I think as you and I both know, producing a podcast is a lot more work than it seems Mm -hmm. like it should be. Even if your show is a relatively simple one like this one, Mm -hmm. it still takes a number of hands to put it together in a lot of time. So could you kind of talk through the workflow from, you know, recording to editing and promoting the podcast, kind of those pieces and some things people might want to think about along the way if they're considering this, but haven't really ever tried it before? I would definitely recommend doing a pilot episode or maybe two or three pilot episodes. That's what we did just to make sure that this is really something we want to do and do consistently. Mm -hmm. That's the other thing about podcasting. There is some expectation. If you're asking people to subscribe to what you're doing, that you're going to hold up your end of the bargain and give them content on a somewhat regular basis. Maybe it's weekly, maybe it's biweekly, maybe it's monthly. I would say not to go any less frequent than monthly. You can buy a couple of microphones and get a a license for Adobe Audition or Hindenburg, or you could even use something like GarageBand or Audacity, which are both free programs. So you could do things pretty quickly. There's all kinds of uh, videos and tutorials out there about how to edit audio. It's most basic level. It's not that different than like cutting and pasting text from a Word document, except you're moving around different pieces of, of audio. There's some fading and things that help with production. But again, you could go a very bare bones model. Our show is a little bit different in that we produce it in partnership with our NPR station here in central Pennsylvania, which also happens to be part of Penn State. So we have audio editing and production help that we get from WPSU, which has been a huge help for me. I don't know that we would be able to do a weekly show if I had to do all the editing, plus prep for the interviews, plus promote the show, plus, you know, book guests and and all of that kind of stuff. 
I think a lot of those logistical pieces are, are for me what I thought would be easy, but it ends up taking a lot of time, you know, figuring out we have a different guest on our show every week. So what's their schedule? What's my schedule? I have two co-hosts on our show. So what's their schedule? What's the studio's schedule if we're recording over there? So it's a lot of moving parts and it can just, like I said, be kind of a time suck to make all those things work. Mm-hmm. I cross my fingers every time we record that like no one's going to be sick that day or <laughs> nothing's going to happen. The weather's not going to be bad. We're not going to, you know, be able to not get to the studio or that no one's computer is going to die. Or there's like any number of things that can go wrong. Yep. <laughs> the other piece of it too is like promotion. It is a vicious cycle. If you are kind of like me, like a team of one doing a lot of this stuff, the episode comes out on a Monday and then it's like, Wednesday and I have to like both write the notes for next week and also like remember to post it on social media and you know all the other things that that you do to to promote a piece of content. Mm-hmm. Some weeks it feels like I I am just on it all the time. Other weeks I'll admit I get kind of behind on one part of this. So, you know, you and I are talking on Friday late morning, uh, it's about noontime. I haven't finished the notes yet from my episode that comes out on Monday. Because the episode we put out this current week has been really timely and kind of in the news. So I've been focusing more on the promotional side of it, trying to to take advantage of some of those connections to what's happening in the news. So mm-hmm. there's only so much time in the day. And I'm still trying to figure out what the, the best balance is. I think a lot of other podcasters that I talk to are in that same boat. Yeah, I know nobody can see this, but I'm just nodding along. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that has absolutely been my experience and it can totally be worth it if you go in with the right expectations, but you just have to know you're signing up for a lot of work if you really want to even achieve that median goal. Yeah. And that's important too. Like uh, podcasting is not for everybody. You know, I think it's important to go into it clear eyed and understand is the amount of work that you're putting into it worth it to get 150 downloads an episode. Mm -hmm. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. Maybe there are some of those tangential benefits that we were talking about earlier that might help sway the decision one way or the other. But just like with anything, don't just jump on the bandwagon because everybody else is, you know, you have to understand what you're going to put into it versus what you might get back out of it. Absolutely. That is fantastic advice. So Jenna, a lot of our listeners like to reach out To our guests after the show, shoot them an email, connect on social media. If someone wanted to reach out to you to find out maybe a little bit more about podcasting, kind of carry this conversation further, what are the best places to connect with you? You can send me an email to Jenna, J-E-N-N-A at PSU.edu. You can also search for me on Medium. I've written several articles about podcasting in higher ed and at organizations more broadly. Look me up on LinkedIn. Uh, Happy to connect there as well. If you wanted to check out our show, you can find it at democracyworkspodcast.com or by searching Democracy Works in any podcast app. Awesome. And just so everybody knows, Jenna, you mentioned a lot of great tools and resources and including your podcast. So we'll also provide links to all that stuff in the show notes over at echodelta.co slash podcast. And uh, Jenna, thank you so much for sharing your insights and experiences on podcasting. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Derek. This is great. The Higher Ed Marketing Lab is produced by Echo Delta, a full-service marketing firm dedicated to helping higher education institutions drive enrollment, increase yield, and capture donors' attention. 
For more information, visit echodelta.co. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes. And as always, if you have questions, suggestions, episode ideas, or just want to reach out and say hi, drop us a line at podcast at echodelta.co. See you next time.